This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're doing a study of Peter's first letter. 1 Peter will be in 1 Peter chapter 2. So please turn there. I'm Bill. I'm one of the pastors. Don't appreciate a pastoral resident basically preaching my whole sermon during his exhortation this morning more effectively than I will. But I am one of the pastors and honored to be one. 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read today and look at closely some very relevant verses. Verses 11 down through verse 17, and they'll give us some practical instruction that we need during these days that we're living in. This is God's Word, God's inspired Word, His holy Word, His inerrant Word given to His church to instruct us and teach us. And let's give our attention now to it here, beginning in verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And my favorite, honor the emperor. May the Lord bless his word today. He's calling us to live like exiles. For the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. In A.D. 37, a boy was born in Italy whose mother would later marry 
the Roman Emperor Claudius. Claudius adopted the little boy and he changed his name to Nero. All this was part of the mother's plan to get him to become the emperor of Rome instead of Claudius's biological son, Britannicus. In AD 54, when Nero was 17 years old, his mother arranged for Claudius to be poisoned. Nero became emperor in his place, and he reigned for 14 years until he committed suicide at the age of 31. In the first seven years of his reign, he led fairly well. He received good counsel from, among others, Seneca, the famous philosopher, But Nero was incapable of ruling well on his own. He became paranoid about all the rumors that that there were plots to kill him. In AD 55, he had his stepbrother Britannicus killed. In AD 59, he had his mother executed. Seneca was forced to commit suicide. And he even had his first wife executed. Peter arrived in Rome in AD 63. Among Christians, the city was already called Babylon because it was the great urban center of anti-Christian power and evil. And it was, it was like the ancient Babylon we read about in the Old Testament where God's people were taken into captivity far from their home, far from the temple of God. First Peter was actually written from Rome, which explains his greeting At the end of the letter in 1 Peter 5, where he says, She, meaning the church who is at Babylon, sends you greetings. On the night of July 19, 64 AD, a fire broke out in the southern part of Rome. Lasted for six days, destroyed much of the city. When the fire was just about to die out, it suddenly and unexpectedly broke out again and burned for three more days The city was devastated. The city was in an uproar. And rumors spread that Nero himself had caused the fire so that he could rebuild Rome more magnificent than ever and get all the glory for himself. One historian says that Nero blamed the already hated Christians for the fire to make them the scapegoat, to divert attention from him. And people were eager to believe the worst about Christians. The persecution against the church was like nothing experienced since Jesus was raised from the dead 30 years before that. Christians were crucified. They were sewn into wild animal skins and fed to the dogs. They were drenched in oil and burned as torches to light the night. Eusebius, an ancient historian, said that Peter was crucified because he had demanded to suffer. Now, 1 Peter was written shortly before this. At the time of this letter, Christians were being slandered and mistreated. It was typical all over the empire, but the great persecution hadn't occurred. But it was like Peter knew it was coming. Chapter 4, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. A pastor from Baton Rouge wrote in a post this week before the election on Monday, 
He says, global pandemic, crashed economy, racial pain, city violence. 2020 has been quite a year. And very soon, the next day, a polarized nation elects a president. Are you having fun yet? It often feels to me like the world is spinning out of control and back into primordial chaos. Of course, none of this is new. From a political perspective, consider that the early Christians endured 14 years of rule by an insane and persecuting Nero. Yet they lived in the confidence of the Lordship of Christ. Even when they had no clout, as they faced ostracism, discrimination, and even death. They spent their lives ministering the gospel to the world in both word and acts of love even as they yearned for Jesus to return. If we could recall why they lived so boldly, perhaps we could recover our confidence as well. What we need today is confidence. At least I need confidence. And this text is meant to give us, to impart to us, confidence and resolve to live in this world for the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. In verses 11 and 12, Peter is transitioning. Now he's going to go into another set of practical instructions. Verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. For the first time, he appeals to his readers personally. He says, beloved. This is a deep word. It's, it's filled with meaning. I don't think beloved really captures it. The NIV says, dear friends. I don't think that gets it. Peter had a deep love for these folks. He was a true friend. He has their interests in mind. He's affectionate. He's passionate. And there are two critical issues in these first two verses that he draws to their attention. Two critical issues that our world does not believe are important. If they did believe that these were important issues. The messages that we hear, the goals that we hear, they'd be very different. But we see from all that we hear and read and observe that the world has priorities and values that are not like this. They're not e these, these values are not even on their list. The first one, the ultimate issue in verse 11 is that the human soul is in danger of being destroyed. There's a war in this world against your soul, against my soul. And if the war is lost, the soul is lost. And there's no getting it back. And it's a priority in the Bible and in our text. This is the ultimate issue in verse 11. Remember Jesus, remember when we studied the Gospel of Mark? Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. What does it profit a man 
to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul. Nothing. What can a man give in return for so nothing? That's how valuable it is from a biblical perspective. Peter was there when Jesus said those words, and he believes that your soul is more valuable than anything in the world. Our world and our culture does not give attention to this issue. We get no counsel how to wage war for the eternal life of our soul, do we? We get told how to fight high cholesterol and how to battle skin cancer, but nothing about how to wage spiritual warfare. I think John Piper is right when he says our modern world is massively preoccupied with the inconsequential. In these verses and in the Bible, this is the great issue, the salvation of the soul. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The second great issue here is the glory of God, the goal of our behavior that's addressed in our text today very specifically is the glory of God for the Lord's sake. That's the great issue, the glory of God in this world. It's God's will for our behavior to draw attention to his glory. If we don't live that way, if we don't live in a manner worthy of the gospel that points people to the glory of God, then we're just like our culture. We aren't exiles, sojourners, strangers, aliens in this world. We're just conforming citizens to a culture that ignores God. So your life matters. Our local church Matters. Every gospel preaching church in our community matters. How we live matters. Maybe more than ever in this crazy week, this crazy year. It's an opportunity for the church to have its finest moment. The most important issue we've observed this week is the same thing we observe every week. It's the absence of God. Listen to David Wells. It's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I don't mean by this that he is ethereal, a kind of a, a weightlessness because he's perfect, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He's lost his saliency. That means he's not noticeably important for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It's a condition we have assigned him 
after having nudged him out to the periphery of our secularized life. His truth is no longer welcome in our public discourse. The engine of modernity rumbles on and he is but a speck in its path. We must live out. We must apply this text so we don't support that. We're not going to ignore God. We need deep conviction. We need confidence in God's Word so that these truths shape our lives. We have a calling. We have a mission that God might use our lives so that He is heavy in our community. And the gospel of grace makes sense and believed and souls are rescued. So how do we, how do, we do this? Peter focuses on two areas. Personal holiness, he goes, returns to this subject, and public behavior. Personal holiness. It's really the foundation for public behavior. So number one, personal holiness. He wants his readers to put the gospel on display with their attitudes, with their words, and with their behavior. And it begins with personal character, personal holiness, godliness, Christ-likeness. Beloved, I urge you, verse 11, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. They're waging war against your soul, your strangers, your aliens, your citizens of another country, your foreigners. So you can't adopt the customs of the country, this country, of this culture, of this world. You've got to live differently. You've got to conduct yourselves honorably. You've got to do good deeds. You've got to be generous even with people that slander you and hate you. He doesn't want them to escape. He doesn't want them to leave the culture. As it says, because you're aliens and strangers, move away, get away, stay away. Does it say that? He says it's their duty to abstain from the passions of the flesh that characterize the outward behavior of the world they live in. They're to control themselves. Remember back in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. You do that by abstaining from the passions of the flesh. This is spiritual warfare. He's returning to this. Christians are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and they fight against these fleshly lusts by the grace of God. The passions of the flesh. They've been set free. They don't have to serve them anymore. For the glory of God. The power of the sinful nature has been broken. They've been regenerated. Been caused to be born again. They have new life in Christ. They're filled with the Spirit of God. And by the grace of God. With God at work in their lives, they can win the battle with this enemy. But this sinful nature remains. There is an enemy within. There is a fight. There's, there's these passions of the flesh, and they're 
contrary to your spiritual welfare. They are against you. They're hostile. Peter paints a picture of a military expedition with a military objective. There's a war going on. It's like these passions are an army of soldiers engaged in a battle against you, against your soul. They want to entangle you. They want to capture you so that you'll be useless for God. This is reality for every believer in this room. For everyone that chooses to follow Christ, there's a war within. Each of us carries around inside of us a battlefield. Best book ever written on the subject was written by a Puritan in the 17th century. His name was John Owen. He says this, wherever you are, whatever you are about, this law of sin is always in you. In the best that you do and in the worst. Men little consider what a dangerous companion is always at home with them. When they are in company, when alone, by night or by day, all is one. Sin is with them. Hold your applause. Oh, the woeful security of poor souls. How little do the most of men think of this inbred enemy that is never from home. How little, for the most part, does the watchfulness of any professors answer the danger of their state and condition? Your soul is the center of who you are. It's the heart of your being. That's why Proverbs 4 says, Watch over your heart, your soul, with all diligence, for out of it spring the springs of life. So you want to watch over your soul and you have an enemy. Sin is not your friend. If you allow these passions to go unchecked, it'll not end well for you. One point of application for parents. Raising little sinners. We had cousins night on Thursday night. My youngest grandkid. He's going up the steps. He's a year and a half old. It, it's dangerous. He could fall down the steps. He's not that stable. I'm not being a bad grandfather. I'm being a good grandfather when I say, no. No. Do not go up the steps. His response made me think maybe he can't hear. <laughs> maybe he's got a hearing problem. It had zero effect. In fact, it had the opposite effect of what I desired. He went up the steps faster with a look on his face that said, I did it my way. You know, I mean, it's what we all sing. I'm going to do what I, I went over, I picked him up. No, no. You need to obey grandfather. No, no eye contact. He's not looking at me. <laughs> He's like, I am not acknowledging your authority in any way. And that's why we have Ted Tripp coming in a few months. We have him come every year, and he preaches the same messages, and every parent should never miss it. 
And he'll teach you how to shepherd their heart. Now, secondly, applying this text means, first of all, personal holiness, and secondly, public behavior. And this is what we want to focus on the remainder of our time because it's so relevant to today. Keep your conduct, verse 12, among the Gentiles honorable. You've got to win that war within to do this. You understand? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, they'll glorify Him because they've been reconciled to Him through the gospel. You've won them to Christ. Our words and behavior are meant to make the gospel attractive. Isn't that a wonderful calling? God causes us to be born again. God empowers us so that we're set free from sin. We don't have to serve sin anymore. We can win this spiritual battle within. And then our words and our behavior publicly can be such that it makes the gospel attractive. And we can tell them why. It's not self-righteousness. It's the glorious gift of righteousness that has been given to us by our Savior. We've been forgiven of sins. We are sinners who have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Amen. There's going to be fruit when you fight against these sinful desires. Your words, your deeds, your public fruit is going to be noticeable. It's going to be different. It's going to give you the opportunity to honor God. Isn't that relevant for today? See, Peter knows that their daily lives, our daily lives, are, are going to be lived out under the watchful eyes of our unbelieving neighbors. His readers are just like us. They used to live with their neighbors and live like their neighbors, but God caused them to be born again. This changed them, and now they have new life in Jesus Christ, and now their lives are characterized by honorable behavior and good deeds that commends the gospel, that makes it attractive, that's winsome. That's how we respond to slander and hatred. Peter's concerned about the reputation of believers. He's concerned about the reputation of the church. Now let's Let's pause and think for a minute about social media in the 21st century. Do you think this applies? Do you think it, how, how we use and what we type out on social media, do you think that matters? Yes, it does. <laughs> so let's let our use of social media be honorable. All that's going on out there, there's so much that isn't good. It'll be striking when we apply these verses to our use of social media. The truth is that genuine Christ-likeness is attractive. Even for a critic, even for a hater, it will win them. 
Peter says, keep your conduct honorable so that they will glorify God. Here's the reason. Here's the goal. Here's the purpose for living godly lives. Even though they accuse you wrongly when they see your good deeds, they'll glorify God. It's evangelistic. It'll win people. Here's how you refute the slander. Here's how you change their attitude of your enemies. When you're misunderstood. This is what Jesus meant when he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter heard that, and now he's teaching the churches that he's teaching us that. And here's the practical implication. The follower of Christ has a duty to submit to the state. Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He's blunt. They have a duty to submit to the state. This is a demand. There's an urgency to it, which makes sense, right? They're living in the Roman Empire. They're in Rome. Nero is the emperor. There's an urgency to it. It's not, it's not just, oh, the election didn't go our way or go your way, or maybe it did go your way. It's Nero as emperor. <laughs> There's an urgency to it. Submission to the government, in Peter's view, doesn't mean I'm a coward. It can mean that I am obeying my king, and I am doing my sacred duty because he has called me to it. Many, many Jews during the first century did not want to submit to the state. They didn't teach that you should submit to the state. But for the Christian, the duty of submission is an essential aspect of following Jesus Christ. Verse 13, be subject to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. We are to be subject to all the different types of governments that man has instituted, according to Peter. It's a broad demand. I, I don't think you can say, not my president, and think Peter's going to support you. Peter's thinking of the Roman Empire. But whatever form of government a Christian finds themselves living under, Peter's words demand obedience. We're to obey the law of the land. Federal law, state law, local law. One commentator said, from the Supreme Court to the traffic court, from income tax to parking regulations, Believers are to be subject to duly constituted authority. What about civil disobedience? It's a big topic now. A lot of Christians have been talking about it. And Peter's instructions don't deal with civil disobedience. But we know Peter himself disobeyed the government. Remember Acts chapter 4. 
They called them, they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Then in chapter 5, after they disobeyed, they, they brought them in again, they set them before the council. High priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than man. So clearly there is a time for civil disobedience. For us, the state is not the highest authority. And whenever the government demands that which is in conflict with the dictates of our conscience, our conscience informed by the Spirit and the Word, then we obey God. And in the early church, they learned there were consequences. And they paid them. In the 17th century, my historical hero, John Flavel, I think we have a picture of him. He made a habit. Good looking guy, don't you think? He made a habit of breaking the law. This is a, a lawbreaker right here. He was born in England in 1628. The 17th century in England, there was much persecution. His father died in prison because he had violated the religious law. Flavel, John Flavel, was ejected from his pulpit in 1662 because he wouldn't conform to the religious requirements. But he continued to meet with his congregation illegally. He'd preach for them in secret locations in the woods. Once he even disguised himself as a woman on horseback so he could get to his con congregation. He escaped authorities one time by jumping into the sea with his horse and swimming to safety. They had a five-mile act they passed so that he couldn't be within five miles of his congregation. So he moved with, with outside the five-mile limit. Then he'd meet him at night inside the five-mile limit. And he would preach to them. One time, the, the authorities came. Everybody scattered. They captured some of them and fined them. But some of the ones they didn't capture, they went, they met up with Flavel, and he picked right up where he left off in his sermon. Finished the message at midnight. I don't, I don't think you'd stay till midnight with me in the woods. <laughs> the point is, there's time for civil disobedience. But under no ordinary circumstances, believers should actively support civil government. Be subject. Why? For the Lord's sake. It's for the glory of God. For the Lord's sake, verse 13, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governors, all classes of authorities, be subject to the emperor. Nero was an evil an unworthy man. But he had an office and he represented the civil government. So Peter obviously didn't think that the emperor had to be worthy. Then he gives us, here, here's the purpose of civil government. Verse 14, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The government exists 
Because we live in a fallen world where there are evil people and God has instituted civil government for that reason. It's a testimony to the fact of sin and evil. That's what government is for. The government exists to punish criminals who commit crimes. It isn't wise to think we can have a prospering society without this. For example, to do away with the police. If a police officer is a criminal, he should be punished. If he breaks the law, he should be punished like all people who break the law. And no one desires for a bad cop to be punished more than a good cop. I thank God for the police officers that serve us today. Kevin, our main man, is not here today because he got married this weekend. Yeah, tell him congratulations next week. I know a bunch of you got together and gave him a gift. We want to thank them. We thank you. There are evil people that would love to do harm to churches. We know that. And so we have the police here. And just that car sitting out in the parking lot, the bad guys go a different direction. We're grateful for it. Doesn't mean there aren't bad cops. But there are good cops by the grace of God. And we are grateful for it. And they're commit to commend those who do what is right. So Peter is calling us to live like we're different. Like we're exiles. Like we don't belong to this world, we belong to a different world. Like we're not a part of this country, part of a different country. We think different. We have a different world view. God is weighty to us. And we have a beautiful calling that is so needed right now. Peter says, verse 15, this is the will of God. That by doing good, You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And they are very loud right now. Very, very loud. And the way we can silence them is by doing good. For the Lord's sake. It has a sanctifying effect on our society. What what a wonderful thing. Don't you want to make a difference? I do. We live in a culture that is anxious and fearful. There's a lot of suffering and confusion. And I think everybody in this room wants to help. We want to do something. And we have the perfect thing to do. Live a good life by the grace of God. Live an honorable life. Be different because God has caused us to be born again. And come together as a church And verse 16, live as people who are free, free from sin. We don't have to serve sin anymore. But don't don't use it as a cover-up for evil. Don't be antinomians. Don't be those who have no laws and freedom from sin. Just grace means to me, why not sin so grace can abound? Why not? Break the laws. Why not do whatever I want to do? Don't use your, your freedom like that. Use your freedom 
to live as servants of God. And if we do that, we can make a difference. Here's how you do it. Verse 17, honor everyone. Honor everyone. It's striking. Peter knows we're in a fallen world. He knows it's filled with evil people, captive by sin. And he says, honor them. Sinful man is the object of God's love. God so loved the world and he wants us to do the same. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. That's Peter's way of saying the church. He never uses those words, the church. So when he's talking about the church, he says, love the brotherhood. Especially love the people in the church. Fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says. Fear God. Because you've been set free, fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. These are crazy days. This is a crazy year. How do you respond to all this? Fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. Finally, my favorite, I want to make a bumper sticker, honor the emperor. <laughs> honor the emperor. The end of this election week. That's the will of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy today. Lord, we need your grace. It is our passion and our joy and our desire to glorify you, Lord, because you've been so good to us. And we thank you for that. And we praise you for that. Thank you for your word that is so clear and so helpful. On a morning like this, in a week like this, during a year like this, you give us your word. And it speaks clearly and encourages us, Lord, and gives us confidence and gives us resolve to live in a manner worthy of the gospel we received. And for that, Lord. We thank you. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.